0: Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Toby. We're the co-founders of Ask Us For Ideas, or Alfie as most people call it, where we help the world's most ambitious businesses, large or small, to connect with a collection of the best and most exciting creative agencies from around the world.
1: Being at the intersection of these brands and creative teams for the best part of a decade has allowed us to get to know some truly exceptional people, This podcast, Private Views, aims to shine a light on that, with the first series publishing conversations inside some of the industry's most exciting creative studios, digging deep, looking beyond their portfolios and into their unique experiences and thought processes.
0: In this episode, we visit the New York office of BASE. The Brussels founded design agency that's also got offices in Geneva and Melbourne. It's not your likely set of cities, but then BASE is all about its people. If life takes them somewhere, BASE follows because it isn't only the design talent that defines their team, but their worldview, their interests, books they read, and the theatre they watch.
2: The fact that we have such a diverse portfolio allows us to draw upon what's happening in current-day society, to draw upon best practices between industry one industry and another, and that informs our work.
1: Their mission is to create cultural impact for their clients, and being able to import a vast swathe of artistic and contemporary references is critical in the designs and brand stories they produce. Their clients include the New York Times, JFK Terminal 4, Milk Studios, NASA, the Meatpacking District, and the Musée Yves Saint Laurent. Base,
0: one of the first agencies we connected with in the US, for us perfectly bridged the European design sensibilities we're known for over here with the US dream big and anything's possible attitude, you see in such riches over there. There are a few agencies out there that open their arms with such generosity to any one business or individual who turns up at their studio. If you've got a great idea and a truckload of ambition, their door's wide open. Zero pretense and
1: oodles of style. Our producer, David Michon, visited BASE hot on the heels of their first in a series of public talks, The BASE Sessions, to learn about their own eureka moment as a business, the manifesto that drives them, and where they draw the line between branding and blanding. But first, he catches up with one of BASE's clients, Milk Studios.
3: My name is Mazdak Rossi, and I'm one of the co-founders and creative director Uh, here at Milk Studios in the Milk Group. I start reading about like really like awesome design studios, you know, and of course I'm, I didn't want like a, one I couldn't afford like a real high, you know, one of those like corporate style branding design studios. So I started reading like surface magazine, all these like really cool, the, all these like really cool magazines. And I read this article about, like, the hottest, youngest, coolest design studios, like, base. They were, like, these Belgian guys, you know, from, like, Brussels and, and, um, and you know, and I, saw so I, I decide, you know, meanwhile, I don't even have a business. I'm, like, so I, I like, emailed them and kind of, you know, just kind of cold called them and you know, Jeff Cook is on the other side. Even though sometimes we're there because I just want a logo, I just want a mark, I want, a, I want an environment, build me an environment. It's like, no, no, no. It's like, you know, they, they're like your shrink, right? So they're like, push you back, slow down. We can always do that, but why? And I think that's when you get into those things. And a good architect does the same. A good engineer does the same, you know, and those are the people you want at your table when you make a major decision to go into a new trajectory.
4: Hey, hey. Hello, hi. Jeff. David. How are you? Hi, good, good. I'm
2: Ben. Hi, nice to meet you. Welcome. Jeff Cook, partner at BASE. BASE was founded in Brussels by two of our partners, Dimitri and Thierry, in the mid-90s. First and foremost, BASE is a human-centric company and people always ask, why do you have studios in Brussels, Geneva, Melbourne? Why not the obvious, London, uh, Beijing? And it is first and foremost because we are a people-driven company. And so we have ex- we have always expanded through our people, either locally or globally. Um, we, are, we tend to attract a very specific type of person. And I think there are a couple of things. First and foremost, um, people always comment that we're fun to work with. And so I think, although we take our work extremely seriously, we do not take ourselves too seriously. And we like to um, have fun, and, um, and as our point number 10 in our manifesto says, we like to make people smile. So the first project we ever did was a book for Joseph Kasuth, back when things were still being typeset. And the second job was a campaign for a fashion house. And the fact that uh, those were our first two projects, and they were very different in terms of uh, what they were, really set the DNA for uh, BASE, which today has evolved from a sort of classic design studio into a full-service branding agency. Yes, of course, we do strategy, identity, digital, a lot of the things that other agencies do. Um, Our focus has always been on the end result and how we measure success. And it's an interesting story. I was uh, not so long ago being interviewed and the, the reporter asked, how would you describe base? And it took me 20 years to answer, well, how would you describe base? And she paused for a moment and said, if I think of all the the really iconic projects of yours that I know, Milk Studios, House, the Vuitton Foundation, um, JFK, she said, they're all very diverse, but the central through line through all of them seems to be that they all have a very profound cultural impact. And so I think to answer your question, the fact that we have such a diverse portfolio allows us to draw upon what's happening in current-day society, to draw upon best practices between industry, one industry and another. And that informs our work. Right.
4: So it's, it, it, it kind of recognizes that these category, you know, these, you know, a kind of actor in one sector category isn't necessarily just operating kind of within that sector, you know, culturally speaking.
2: Exactly. And so uh, as an example, uh, we work with a a phenomenal company that not so long ago was a startup. It's called Kidbox. And it's a children's wear company, subscription-based children's wear company. And when we were starting that project, we said, you know, this is something in terms of the brand that we want to appeal as much to the parents who are saving time going to the mall um, by subscribing to this service as to the children and that having young children be as excited about receiving a box in the mail as their parents. And when we started thinking about what we might reference to build a children's wear identity, we actually thought of the, the artist Roy Lichtenstein, because that is a language that speaks both to parents and children and so if you look at the identity today you'll see a a very direct reference to the artist and so it's it's that's one example of how we are constantly cross-pollinating influences and best practices from one area to another
4: and um, you know in discussions that we've had before um, you said that this is you know this idea of cultural impact was something that was maybe kind of a, a kind of a subconscious driver for base in the past, but that it's become now something that you you uh, kind of consciously strive for. if you can talk about that transition and how maybe that has changed your frame of thinking or your approach to projects.
2: It was an interesting uh, mind shift uh, in that prior to this interview, I do think that we were, subconsciously as partners, looking at projects and saying to ourselves, you know, is this interesting? Is this something that we could add value to, to help? But now it's become very top of mind. And uh, and uh, I think we're now in a fortunate enough position whereby we have a certain number of projects coming in and we're able to look at them and really one by one say, can we, A, add value to this project with what we do? And really help this company or institution or NGO move the needle from A to B significantly. Um, But I I do think more than that, we're really also looking at it and saying, does this have the potential to have cultural impact? And that's really a judgment call. Uh, And,
4: you know, I guess on the opposite end of the spectrum, something like Milk Studios, which is trying to establish those kind of, those uh, those kind of public reference points or you know, that kind of cultural cachet, um, as opposed to kind of playing on an existing cultural cachet. So maybe you can talk about that kind of that end of the, the spectrum in terms of building cultural impact.
2: When we started with Milk, it's an interesting story. It was 20 years ago, and Rossi, the owner, was standing in a construction site. And one of the first things he said to us was, we're going to be the biggest, most successful photo studio on earth. And at the, mo- at, the, at the time, we sort of laughed and my Belgian partner turned to me and said, do all Americans speak like that? And in fact, 20 years later, they've become uh, exponentially more than just a photo studio. So why is that? And how did we together help them to become culturally relevant and to have such a profound cultural impact? And A, it's been a, a very strong partnership, working partnership between us. But I think more than that, what is different about Milk and uh, than any other quote unquote photo studio, and today they've become an industry heavyweight, is that there is a an attitude to the brand and a subculture that sort of um, surrounds their their core business of what, okay, their core business may be we rent studios. But then that how did that allow the, 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 the attitude of the brand and the, the culture, the strong culture of the people within the brand, how, it allowed them to then expand into ancillary businesses, it allowed them to expand into media, it allowed them to create a fashion week that they sold to IMG and even into a makeup line. And it's because that culture is so strong and what they stand for is sort of a downtown New York cool that allows them if tomorrow they were to open a hotel, no one would blink an eye because the brand has become so strong and what they stand for has become so strong that they can pretty much do whatever they want.
4: Right. It's a it represents a, a kind of attitude and set of values or perspective on the world versus a set of services.
2: Exactly right.
4: And do you think that's something that you that's maybe a kind of a lesson that you bring to other clients? Maybe like stop acting like you're like even if you're MoMA, stop acting like you're just a you know, a gallery or museum and start thinking about your kind of culture and value value set.
2: Before we ever do any visual work. We always start um, by having some form of a strategic discussion with our clients. And uh, it is very much true that the lessons that, you know, from the success stories of the Milk and the Noia houses have carried over into all of our clients. And that focus on community, for example, that focus on personality, focus on attitude, the focus on Achieving a, a unique story and really pushing for a story that differentiates the brand from their uh, competitive set; those are those are points that we always focus on, and we we challenge our clients that when we get, um, for example, uh, answers that aren't, let's say, strong enough, we will always push our um, our clients to to go farther. Um.
4: You kind of mentioned attitude, and you know these kind of uh, the personality behind the, some of these brands. I mean, is, is that important for you that there's some chemistry between, you know, base or and you know whoever it is that you're working directly with on the, on the client side?
2: In fact, it's always the first thing we look at. Uh, we, I'm sure, every agency has certain, um, let's say, a certain set of criteria on which they decide upon which work to take on or not. And um, sometimes that's monetary. Sometimes it's uh, portfolio worthiness. But our starting point is always, always the chemistry we have between uh, the client and the agency.
4: And how do you kind of ensure that that becomes a really healthy working relationship? Or do you do you have insight into or explore? As, um, yeah, how do you how do you kind of like tra- transition a kind of initial chemistry into something that becomes like a creative, creatively productive, successful, uh, working relationship? If you know what I mean.
2: I think it's really through um, through the uh, the the let's say the due diligence or the amount of hard work that we put in at the outset to really understand them. If the if they see that we strive to. Um, to go the extra mile to understanding them, what they stand for, their values, their business objectives, it establishes a certain level of trust. And from that foundation, it allows us to maybe go um, and to um, explore uncharted territories and to be um, daring uh, in ways that if that level of trust weren't to exist, we wouldn't be able to.
4: Uh, achieving cultural impact or cultural relevancy um, surely means kind of maybe pushing some of your clients beyond a point, you know, beyond their comfort zone. Um, wondering how you how you take them on that journey and make sure that you know they feel ownership over this and it's not you know something that that they think some kind of cool branding agency is is kind of imposing on them.
2: Yeah, again, I think it starts largely in the strategic phase before we start uh, applying that to the brand, uh, the visual and verbal work, is to really look um, pretty deeply, not only at their objectives and what they're looking to achieve, but at the competitive set. And by way of example, we've just finished a project that we're immensely proud of. It's the International Fund for Animal Welfare, IFAW for short. And, um, by way of example, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Everyone can do this example or this, this, uh, this little test at home, go out and, and look at all the players, the major players that are in that sort of animal and, 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 habitat conservation space. And very quickly you start to realize, okay, it's very Nat Geo. Um, it has a certain sort of, friendly kind of approach, or on the opposite end, it is a kind of a horrific uh, view of what that world looks like. And, um, and so, you know, early on we said, what do we stand for? How are we different? What's our unique approach to this world? And then um, is that consistent with what exists? Or do we want to go on a journey and, and try and be something that's a little more unique? And so by starting from that fundamental kind of foundational work, um, we can then look to, again, yeah, do something that hopefully has uh, cultural impact at the end.
4: And how important, you know, just to to kind of go back, how important is is pulling in these references from other industries or other kind of, you know, just the widest spectrum of, of reference points?
2: Hugely important if we have a 10-point uh, a manifesto can be found on our website uh, that we um, that governs all of our work and one of those is we play with codes and by that I mean every industry tends to have a set of visual and verbal codes So you think of banking and in your head if you immediately think of the major banks, they all have a certain Look or a certain set of codes if you think of Ivy League schools, they have their own set of codes and Our we always challenge ourselves with how do we break those codes or play with those codes? enough that it differentiates uh, Someone from the competitive set without going too far afield without saying oh suddenly our bank now looks like a fashion house That obviously doesn't work. So the question is always by drawing references from other industries to inform our work in a given sector, it allows us to, um, it it gives us rich uh, fodder from which to to break or to play with those codes.
5: My name is Min Lu, I'm a partner at BASE. I think it was around 2007, and there was a point, you know, obviously all agencies really think about themselves and us too, we were thinking about ourselves as a brand. How do we codify what we do, not only for the external, but really also for our internal so that as we evolve um, and grow individually, but also as a company, that we can continue to um hold on to our dna but move forward at the same time and so this piece um, is part of that endeavor so this 10 point manifesto is can't be each point cannot live in silo right this is really if you really think um read this from the designer's mind it is actually our work process and thinking process but if we go back to number one right if we truly understand the context right and understand what the objective is what the goal is and what whether it's a business goal but also um, how people at the end of the day interact with that and second point concept first concept then design we get to a point in number nine whereby well if we've done that research and if we've done that thinking process and then identified a concept and we're expressing those thinking and the concept in our design it's not about the aesthetics it is about those idea what is appropriate what will make you know um the work for our clients really stand out and yet be true to who they are so it's it's a point that we're trying to make as in it's less about the aesthetics it is the output is an outcome of the exploration and the thinking behind it.
4: In a conversation that we we had before this interview, you said something very interesting about, um, about efficiency, <laughs> um, which I think is usually used as a very kind of positive word or positive value, and that's not necessarily the case for you. So just wondering if you could elaborate on that.
5: So what we were talking about earlier was efficiency versus effectiveness and a lot of times um, there can be a formula or there can be a process right which from a studio perspective can be very efficient you can get to um, a presentation or a solution for a client in a very efficient manner or if you specialize in a sector, you become a master of that, right? And then you kind of gain efficiency. But what we're interested in is effectiveness. So by uh, consciously, we don't try to spe- um, specialize in one sector because the learning that we have from one um, sector to another, we can cross-pollinate, we can um, apply the learning. Um, and it's really... I think that's how we achieve relevancy. And it also makes us come up with unique solutions rather than, um, yeah, really rely on and create habits, right? And it, you lose sort of the freshness that you can bring to the table for not making that a mechanical um, process.
4: So what then, you know, when you, you take on a new client, or even if you're doing some new client work for someone you've worked with for ages, what are the, you know, what are then the questions that you ask of them or ask of yourself to start to understand what process makes sense or um, what, uh, you know, what um, steps you need to take or, you know, if, this, if, if it's not a kind of a set process, um, how is it that you figure out what the process should be?
5: Well, the first step, I think it's really trying to understand um, the client from all um, from a 360 point of view, not only the task at hand or the ask. Um, that's sort of the easy entry point. But in in an in initial sort of the first phase, what we like to do is Um, I'm borrowing this from um, the Disney, it's called the Disney method. Walt Disney, back in the day when he was alive, he would work with his writers and he would have three physical rooms. And I think back then they would move from one room to another, right? The first room is uh, the dream room, right? What, without any um, limitations, what do, you know, the people, or the company really want to achieve? Who do they want to be? How do they want to be perceived? What are the business goals? What are the um, emotional goals? What are the, you know, you can think about it and and nothing is a bad answer, even if it's a pie in the sky. So we really get to, in that session or in that room, understand the emotional, Um, desires and ambition, um, as well as the business sort of ambitions and goals as well. The second room becomes a critical room and then you start poking holes and the reality hits, right? Oh yes, but, oh yes, but, and then we start to understand the dynamics. Who out of the many stakeholders are interested in what? What are their personal agendas? And And even that dynamic is really incredibly important Um, for us to um, create the work. Where do the stakeholders align? Where do they not align? And that also outlines, oh, there's work to be done for further alignment or great, everyone is aligned, and right? So it's not just about design. And then the third room, after going through that and everything is revealed and put on the table, then the reality room hits. So, and then that's the planning. What, what are the next steps? So it's really about, it starts with the client, right? Their conditions.
4: You talk a lot about kind of cross-pollination and um, bringing references from one sector to the other. How does that kind of manifest in terms of the, the team? I mean, do you kind of share experiences from uh, projects or uh, kind of reference points or whatever is kind of interesting you culturally? How, how do you kind of ensure that that happens?
5: We do two things. One is we do have uh, weekly creative meetings. It may be on a project, but a lot of times it's actually sharing so that even if you're not working on the project, you're constantly understanding what is happening in the other projects and share, talk about like what works and what didn't work, what were the successes, what were the challenges. Um, so there is constantly the entire studio is aware of how the project is going and what we're doing on the project. Um, so that becomes very natural. The second thing we do, I am not a believer of mood boards in the sense, so in the research phase, of course, we look at you know, adjacent competitors and you know, the sector um, as a whole. So that we consider as a research phase. But then as soon as we distilled the idea and the brand idea and the, the, the strategy down, in the creative phase, we do not look at that. Meaning we don't look at other creative outputs related to that sector or not even in the same sector. We, I prohibit. <laughs> Um, creating mood boards of other graphic design, meaning others' solutions. Instead, we do have mood boards that is related more to the concept.
4: Do you also then try to avoid kind of visual cues in in certain circumstances? I mean, would you look to kind of a theater, a poem, a song?
5: Right. Or, for example, in... um, a uh, animal organization that we just launched, IFA. Um, our mood board had MacGyver, right? Mixed uh, match with Einstein, because we it, the, the the strategy and the idea was really um, ex- we, we felt that IFA was really about creating fresh and bold ideas um that are and they were very boots on the ground so we invented this persona where MacGyver who is very handy who is on the ground and solving problems right difficult problems but in a practical way with Einstein the the imaginative the creative the genius and it starts to create a personality and it becomes more tangible and it allows us to actually be very creative um, and yet, be very linked to the strategy of how we want to position um, the brand,
4: and ensure a bit of a bit of depth, I suppose, that that allows that brand to take on more of an actual personality, not just a kind of facade, uh, kind of slapped-on brand.
5: Exactly, and um, we uh, recently published a article um, called "Blanding," and it was really. Um, something that we have been internally talking about and we are very acute to that because we 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 are really about trying to personify um and i you know you differentiate our clients through their personality and attitude right and as we were you know living in new york city or looking at sort of the landscape of certain sectors um, in the branding world, we started to see, and I think it's related to technology, but we started to see a lot of similarities, almost like creating tech or startups, really creating its own codes, right? And go back to our design manifesto, we freely mix um, our codes. You know, we play with codes in order to find something unique. Right? We're looking at a panettone box, and that was a gorgeous, um, heartfelt um, passion project from this um, chef, Roy. And there we said, okay, do we go for full-on um, baked goods, confection sort of vernacular? Actually, no, this is a personal project, a passion project. So I asked Roy to write a letter From his heart, so we put that in. But in terms of um, it's what the product is, it's a very high-end product. So we wanted to we borrowed the code of luxury, right? So we're juxtaposing something very personal in terms of the tone of voice and the copy, right? With the name from Roy, which is very accessible, very about the person, juxtaposed with this graphic and the aesthetic that elevates and it's the play between the two
4: and also i think so much about purpose because as much as penitenti is like a food item it's like a you know it's, a, it's often a gift exactly min thank you so much thank you that was producer david michon
0: visiting the new york offices of bass
1: a big thank you from myself nick and toby for listening
0: Thank you also to Jeff and Min at base and Razdak at Milk for their time. To Sean Crook for editing this episode, to George Grinling for the theme music and to Maid Thor for Private View's Visual Identity.
1: To find other episodes, head to Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud or wherever else you absorb your podcasts. Or to find out more about Alfie, please visit our website, aufi.com. We're also on social media channels using the handle at Ideas. And finally... Please do share this episode, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and do listen to the others we've put out as part of this series. Until next time.